We are starting a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians and looking at uh, Christianity over culture and how we can keep ourselves from being overcome and overwhelmed by the culture that we're in. And uh, I had a coughing fit last night, so one of our elders, Joe um, Blanky, will be helping me read some of these scriptures. So if you hear a voice coming from out there, it's helping, helping read some of the scripture for me so I don't lose my voice. Um, but if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to look at something that um, is actually out of the book of Ephesians, but the Apostle Paul encourages us. He says, redeem the time for the days are evil. And basically what he's saying by that scripture is we need to make the best use of our time because there's a lot of opposition. And in fact, the world has been decayed by sin and is under the sway or under the influence of Satan. And so if we are not actively being urgent and actively engaged in our faith, ultimately we will be overcome by our sin and we will be overcome by our culture in the long run. And I've never really done this, but I've heard this works. Maybe you guys can try it if you want to. But if you put a... A pot of water on the stove and you boil it and you put a frog in that boiling water, the frog will instantly jump out because the water's so hot. It doesn't want to, doesn't want to die, right? It doesn't want to get cooked alive. But if you put that same frog in a pot that's just lukewarm water, you put it on the stove and you turn it up one degree at a time, eventually that uh, frog will actually acclimate to the water and it will be cooked alive without even moving, that it'll just stay in that pot until it's been cooked alive until it dies. And I believe this is oftentimes what our culture and really what Satan and sin tries to do to us. That if we're tempted to make a huge, huge leap of sin, something that's outside of our comfort level, we probably aren't going to do it. But if culture or Satan or our sin can tempt us day by day, inch by inch, little by little, all of a sudden we can be in a very dark place that we would have never gotten. And we wonder, how did we get there? And it wasn't overnight, but it was day by day falling asleep and being apathetic spiritually that Satan begins to. Um, overtake us or take advantage of us. And, you know, if we were in war, say we're in war with China, one of China's best uh, tactics against America could be to convince us that we weren't at war, right? If we didn't think we were at war and we're really at war, we're not going to be very good at uh, attacking China. We're not going to be very good at defending ourselves. And this is exactly how um, Satan works, that we are, each one of us, are in a spiritual war every single day. Whether we recognize it, whether we admit it, whether we even know that or not, every single one of us is in a spiritual war. And Ephesians tells us our battle is not against flesh and blood, but is against principalities or powers or ultimately demonic forces and sin. And so each one of us is engaged in warfare. And what our culture tells us day in and day out is that we're not, that we can be comfortable, we can pursue our own life, we can be apathetic spiritually and just kind of, yeah, lackadaisical, just go through life trying to be a nice person. And ultimately that's what God wants us to do. And it's not. But if we are not careful, that is what culture will tell us and eventually convince us of. So some of you, I think we ran out, but uh, we have this little sheet out in the front. If you guys have it, you can look at that real quick. If not, you can grab one on the way out. I printed a few more. But this is just an overview of the book of 1 Corinthians. I want to give us a little bit of context as we're studying this book. And this gives you some homework. If you want to do a little bit more of a deep dive of what we talk about today, you can get in the scripture, look at some of these cross-references, and hopefully understand the Bible a little bit more. So the first thing we want to understand is that the Apostle Paul is the one writing this book. And he's writing this book to a specific group of people. This is a letter. 1 Corinthians is a letter. And although Paul wrote the book, something that we believe um, as a church is that ultimately God is the one who inspired Scripture. 
Although Paul wrote it down, the Holy Spirit was speaking through Paul and giving the church direction and truth. And so what Paul was saying to the Corinthian church because it was inspired by God is still relevant to us today because it is God's word. Now, what's also important is to recognize that this is a letter, and I want you guys to imagine, you know, this is 16 chapters long, and when they first got the book of 1 Corinthians um, back in about 55 AD, they got up here and read the whole book, right, the whole 16 chapters, but there was no verses, there was no chapters, they just got up and they read it, and so that's what we're going to do today, we're going to read all the way through No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to read all the chapters. But we are going to read the first two chapters. But my encouragement to you guys um, throughout this series is to find at least one time over the next, I think we're in this series for like eight, eight, nine weeks, one time to read through 1 Corinthians from start to end in one sitting. Sounds like a lot. It'll take you 30 minutes. And if you feel like you're a slow reader, turn on audio Bible and just listen to it. But there's a lot of benefit in getting the whole context of the letter. Because if you wrote me a 16-page letter and I only read three sentences, what are the odds that I'm going to really catch what you were trying to say even by those three sentences? Not very likely, right? Because it's in context of what you were saying overall. So I just really want to encourage us as a church to realize that this was written to a group of people. It's one letter, and it's really one um, long flow of thought with different different subpoints within it. Second thing I want to look at is what was happening in Corinth. Because the culture of Corinth, I think, is very applicable to us today um, in America. The first thing about uh, the Corinthian culture was it was so evil that the surrounding cities and regions would say if they wanted to um, corrupt something, they would say to Corinthianize it. That Corinthians or Corinth had become synonymous with debauchery and evil and wickedness. And so when people heard this term, it would be maybe like today, like Las Vegas or something. Like something specific that you know there's going to be sin and there's going to be evil there no matter what time of day you go that there is going to be wickedness. And that's what Corinth had been um, known for. They also had a very booming economy. There was a lot of trade going on there. So there was a lot of idolatry of money. And as a fast-moving society, people were very busy. Um, They hosted the Isthmian Games, which was the second biggest sporting event outside of the Olympics, was held in Corinth. And so sports were viewed very highly. People idolized athletes and taking care of the body. Um, There was pagan worship, a lot of false gods, a lot of false religions. Um, But primarily, these pagan um, religions focused around sexuality. And we live in a culture where we're bombarded with the world's view of sexuality, whether that be sexual identity. And guess what? There was pedophilia in Corinth that we're dealing with today in America. There was homosexuality. And um, this whole gender identity thing was going on in Corinth that's not necessarily new, even though it's becoming more common. These things were happening in their day as well. Um, Divorce and marriage problems, multiple partners, was very common in Corinth. And there was even a temple that was um, Aphrodite, her temple, had 1,000 women who served as temple prostitutes. And they would go throughout the city, and to have sex with one of these temple prostitutes was seen as a religious or spiritual experience. So when you think about this, this is the culture Paul's walking into. And so this is a very, very wicked place. But when Paul leaves, there's an entire church. And so this shows us the power of the gospel is even though there was all this wickedness and all these things against the truth, that through the demonstration of the power of the gospel, people were able to be changed and a church was established. But the problem was, as Paul left, what do you guys think happened to the church? 
they started to be influenced by the culture. And so all of a sudden, the culture started to seep into the church. The church ended up committing sexual immorality. There was division. They were mad at each other. They had offenses. They weren't forgiving one another. And then finally, they even let a false teaching creep into the church. And so throughout 1 Corinthians, we're going to be talking about how to deal with division in the church. We're going to be talking about sexual sin. We're going to be talking about how, how we deal with offense towards one another. Um, we'll be talking about marriage, selfishness divorce, uh, money, how to handle our money, um, what the church should look like um, in 1 Corinthians 12 um, through 14, and how do we deal with false doctrine. So all of these things, not only do we deal with today, but in the uh, culture at Corinth, I believe it was very similar. Uh, Maybe times have changed a little bit, but the underlying sin and issues they were dealing with are very similar to what we are. But I think what's interesting is Paul does not directly correct their behavior right away. What Paul starts with, and we're going to look at today, is he starts with doctrine. He starts with truth. And what we need to realize is what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves will directly impact the way we behave. It's not the other way around. Christianity is not about morality and self-disciplines. Christianity is about heart transformation. And Jesus says, you'll know the truth, and the truth is what will set you free. And so for each one of us, I think it's super important to really take a step back and ask ourselves those questions. You know, what do I truly believe about God? What do I believe about the Bible? What do I believe about sin? What do I believe about the church? Because there's two words I think for some reason have almost become like bad words in the church, and that's theology and doctrine. I think when you start to mention those two words, people seem to get bored or think, you know, we're just doing academia and it isn't very relevant. But all theology means is what is true about God. And what you say about is true about God matters a lot. And what you say about is true about God is how you're going to behave. It's going to influence how you view yourself, how you view others. And each one of us, whether we know it or not, has a theology. And it's impacting us every single day. Whatever you think is true about God is your theology. Whether you're confident in it or not is maybe another question. But whatever you believe is true about God is your theology. And you're probably preaching it every day. And the way you interact with others and the conversations you have politically or whatever it may be, your theology, what you believe is true about God and what you believe is true about yourself is coming out on a daily basis. So we're going to see that through the book of 1 Corinthians, he deals with very practical issues. But before he deals with the practical issue, he deals with the truth that can give us the power to change. And then he teaches us how to apply it. So if you guys will turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to have... Elder Joe here, read um, verse 1 through 3. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the names of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we see here is Paul calls himself an apostle. And an apostle means someone who was sent out by God. And specifically, Paul was an apostle sent to the Gentiles. And why this is important is because when Paul's calling himself an apostle, he's claiming ultimate authority. Again, he's saying, my words are not my own words, but my words are from God. And he has given me this authority on how to teach the church and how to glorify Christ. So we know that what we're about to read is not just Paul's opinion, but ultimately it's God's word. 
Second thing he says is he says he's writing to those who are sanctified. Now I want to look at this word sanctified because there's three main parts to salvation. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification. And so what justification means is that by the blood of Christ, by grace, through faith, we are innocent before God. We move from a place of being guilty and we move to a place of being innocent because of Christ's payment. The second thing that happens, though, is we are sanctified. That means that we are made more like Jesus Christ on a daily basis. So when we're justified, immediately you are seen actually as perfect before God because you have the righteousness of Christ. But how many of you guys felt perfect the day after you got saved? Right? Nobody felt that way. It's because there's a process of us becoming more like Christ, and that is called sanctification. Finally, there's a process called glorification where God will give us a new mind and a new body in which we will live forever with God in heaven or for eternity. But these three things come as a package, that when we are justified, we are promised that Christ is going to sanctify us. The best way to know that we've been justified is the fact that God is working on our life through the Holy Spirit and that we are becoming more like Jesus Christ. And then the promise is that when we die, we won't just cease to exist, we won't go to hell, but instead we'll have a glorified mind, a glorified body to live with Jesus Christ forever. Now, the second thing he says, along with being sanctified, he says, I'm writing to those who are called to be saints. So we've done this uh, three, no, this will be the third time now, but I want you to raise your hand high and proud if you are a saint. So eight o'clock service had the most saints. Um, But uh, if you have received, and I know this is a little confusing, but if you have received the gospel by grace, Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. What a saint means is someone who has been separated from the world for God's purpose. And if you've received the gospel, you are a saint. And I know in that, in our culture, sometimes we use saint as someone who's super, you know, super holy or super religious or, you know, the Catholics teach that if... um, In order to be a saint, you have to do a miracle, a confirmed miracle. But what this word saint comes from, it's a Hebrew word that means separated from the lump. And so if you had a lump of meat here and you cut off a piece and separated that little piece, that piece has now been sanctified. It's been separated. And each one of us, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are separated from the world. We are sanctified and we are saints. So... Hopefully, if we ask that question again, we'd have more hands. There's more saints in here than maybe we thought. And that's a cool thing, that God has given us a purpose that's beyond what we could really fathom. He's given us a purpose to be holy and blameless and to represent him, to be separate from the world each and every day. And this should humble us, that God has made us saints. He's made us holy. We shouldn't, that shouldn't make us prideful, but instead we should be thankful that even though we're sinners, God has made us righteous by Jesus Christ. So you guys turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read verse 4 through 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, 
Jesus Christ our Lord. So now Paul is continuing to encourage them with their identity. And there's about four reasons why he believes they're saints. And it's because of the fruit that they've displayed from their life. We don't become saints because we work hard or we go to church. We become saints because we've been sanctified, we've been changed by grace through faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a few ways that Paul saw that they had done this. Number one, it says that they've been enriched by the power of God. And so one thing that happens when we receive Christ is we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Part of that power is to overcome our sin. Part of that power is what he says here, that we would be enriched in gifts and wisdom and utterance and knowledge. And so the only way we can understand the will of God is through the Holy Spirit. We can't do that on our own. We just talked about that in our series through John, especially John 14, is that the only way we can understand the things of God is through the Holy Spirit, and that comes by receiving the gift of Jesus Christ. So Paul had seen that these people had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. They'd received wisdom from the Holy Spirit. And then they had an eternal perspective. It says they eagerly were waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. And all this means is that they were eagerly waiting for Christ's return. And a lot of times in our culture, I think... um, you know, the return of Christ can be used almost as a threat. You know, you better get your life together because Jesus Christ is coming. Now, there is a reality of judgment with Christ's return, but for the believer, this should be an encouraging thing, that they were eagerly waiting, expecting, excited for the return of Christ because that meant that they would be absent from the body, they would no longer be suffering, um, but they would be with Jesus Christ forever. And so one thing that happens or should happen in the life of a believer is we should gain an eternal perspective. We should no longer be living for this life, but we should be living for eternity. And in 1 John, he says that perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment and that we can stand at the judgment seat of Christ with boldness because of the grace that's been given to us. And so as believers, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're gifted with the Holy Spirit, and we should be eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. But this last one's my favorite, and he says um, that Christ will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is a doctrine, a teaching that we hold to um, at Mitchell Breen is called eternal security. What this means is that when you have truly been saved, when you've been changed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit, you cannot lose your salvation. That's something that we believe. And we believe that because we believe that Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one who begins our faith and he is the one who will keep us to the end. And so Paul is encouraging them, even when you're struggling, maybe you haven't been living out your beliefs in the way you should, but you can trust that God isn't gonna leave you, he's not gonna forsake you, but he is gonna change you. Now Paul also gives a warning later in this book in 1 Corinthians 15 that he challenges the Corinthians that maybe the reason they're living like they're living is because they've believed in vain. See, it's possible to believe with our mind and never surrender to Christ with our heart. And just because we say a prayer or believe in our mind doesn't mean that we have eternal security. But when we surrender and Christ changes us with the power of his Holy Spirit, that's where the eternal security comes. And so Paul will challenge, you'll see this over and over in the letters to the churches, that he always encourages people, one, God will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. But two, maybe the reason that you don't have power to overcome your sin is because you believe believed in vain. You never really surrendered to Christ and you've just been kind of going on autopilot, going to church, going through the motions, but have never actually received the power of the Holy Spirit to change. 
So Paul has now built them up with their identity. They're in Christ. They're saints. They're sanctified. It's kind of like a coach who shows you the two or three good things you did. So then he's going to come back and say, okay, now these are the two or three things you got to work on. Now he's going to challenge or correct them. So now Paul is coming for the correction here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 10 through uh, 17. If we can have that one read, Joe, that'd be great. Now I plead with you, brethren. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul. Or I am of Apollos, I am a Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So what was happening in Corinth is I think a lot of times what we see happening in our culture. When we talk about division, when we talk about different denominations, and ultimately when we talk about people end up kind of worshiping superstar preachers and start to worship or be drawn to a specific person rather than elevating who Jesus Christ is. And they had some great preachers in Corinth. They had Paul was there and Apollos and Peter, some of the apostles. And they were starting to make it about these guys. What preacher did they like better and what maybe flavor of Christianity did they like better? And as a result, they were diminishing the power of the gospel. Because when we start to compare ourselves by ourselves and start to decide, you know, who's better or what preacher's better or what church is better, what denomination's better, all of a sudden it becomes about us. That we're saying who is more spiritual rather than all of us seeing we all have a need for Christ. We all are humbled by the power of the gospel. We all know that without Christ we would be dead in our sins. And as a result, we're not comparing ourselves or challenging one another, but instead we're doing all that we're doing ultimately out of love. And I think what's important about this is, well, let me ask this question. We'll do another um, hand raise. Is with this being said, if division's bad, do you guys think it is a, raise your hand if you think it's a bad thing that we um, have more than one church in Western Nebraska. If you think that's a bad thing, we should just have one church so we could all be unified, raise your hand. All right, no hands. I agree with you guys. I don't think that would be a good thing. Now, if you do this on your homework, Romans 14 talks about minor differences and things that would come up in our faith that it's okay to disagree on. That's not the main point. The main point is the gospel of Christ. And we have an event coming up, um, the Horizon Music Festival, that's kind of built on this. There's a basic doctrine statement about the gospel, but there's different churches all throughout the community that are coming together to worship Christ and advance the gospel. That's a great thing. 
but that doesn't mean we all have to necessarily come to the same church. That Romans 14 talks about dietary restrictions and should we worship on Saturday or Sunday. Those things should not create hostility and division between one another, but they can create different churches. That's not a bad thing. Different churches will reach different people. So what we have to realize is unity does not mean we all worship and act necessarily the same way. We may have a different expression of how we worship Christ, but the foundation of truth should be the same across the board because there is a time where division is needed. Jesus said that he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword, to separate mother from father and um, daughter from her mom, that there is times where the gospel does draw a line in the sand and we have to choose, are we going to serve Christ or are we going to serve the world? And so there is times where based upon the based upon false teaching or based upon sin, we need to draw that line and we need to remain sanctified, separated from the world. But most of the time, as this case in 1 Corinthians, we cause unnecessary division by our own pride and by our own comparison. So if we continue reading here in 1 Corinthians, we'll read um, verse 18 um, to the end of the first chapter here through verse 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things in the world to put shame to the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put shame to the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And to the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So a very quick summary of that scripture could be God works in the very opposite way that the world works. The world wants power. The world wants to control people with pride or influence. And God works through humility. Who did God choose for his disciples? He chose fishermen, right, and tax collectors and those who were the least people that that we would ever think that God would use. That God wants to use the weak things, um, the things that are unexpected in this world. Why? So that people could see him. That people would actually glorify God. This isn't about having 
a cool church or a cool preacher or, or fun, exciting services, but this is about that Jesus Christ would be glorified, that we would be changed, that we would be free from our sin, and that we could testify of the goodness of God to the world around us. But all of a sudden, the Corinthians were making it about themselves. See, their main problem wasn't necessarily selfishness. Their main problem was they had taken their eyes off the gospel. It's impossible to keep our eyes and our heart saturated with the gospel and to be offended and prideful and bickering and causing division. We will not do that. That the reason we make those mistakes is either one, we haven't understood the gospel, or two, we've gotten distracted from the gospel, whether that be through culture or through our own sin. That Paul lays it out very clearly that the way to Christ is humility. That the Greeks want, it's the same thing today. People want all the apologetics and all, we talked about this a little bit at Easter. They want all the answers, but yet you give them all the answers and they still don't want to surrender. Why? They don't want to believe in God because it's a pride issue. That they aren't willing to humble themselves to the simple truth of the gospel. And to the Jews, it was a stumbling block because they want it to be about works. But it's an offensive thing to say, I'm dead in my sins. I can do nothing to change that. And God, by his grace and his love, has given me the opportunity to believe in him through Jesus Christ. And now I'm saved. And how many people get frustrated with saying, oh, so someone can you know, accept Christ on their deathbed and still go to heaven if they've done all these horrible things? Yes, they can, if they accept and they truly repent from their sins. And again, it can be offensive for people who feel like they've been a good person their whole life and this guy's getting off the hook. But the issue is, we're not good people. Each one of us falls so short of the glory of God. And I had an opportunity to share the gospel with these kids a couple weeks ago that had been suspended. And we were talking about the gospel and talking about sin. And I asked them, you know, how sinful would you guys say you are from one to ten? And they, all of them, you know, they're suspended, they're in trouble on probation, and all of them are like 10. You know, I'm a, I'm a 10, I'm a sinner. But the cool thing was is all, almost all these kids, six of them, actually came to the place where they received the gospel because they saw their need for God. They saw that they were a sinner. And I asked them, well, how sinful do you guys think that I am? They said, well, probably like a three or maybe a four. And I said, no, you know, I'm, I'm a 10 too, that we are all so infinitely short of God's glory. It doesn't matter how many good works you've done. The only person who's getting to heaven is a perfect person. And that only comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I told them, you know, it'd be like standing on top of Mount Everest and say you could see to the bottom of Mount Everest and two people were jumping. One person had a two-inch vertical and one person had a 60-inch vertical. Do you think you can tell who's jumping higher from the top of Mount Everest? No, no idea who's jumping higher from that high up. And that's our good works in comparison to God, that he really doesn't care. He really doesn't care. The only thing that can please God is Jesus. That's the only thing that can meet a standard and that can only be obtained by grace through faith. And the reason God had set it up this way is that we would glorify him and we wouldn't worship one another, that we wouldn't be offended by one another because ultimately it's all about Jesus Christ. So we're going to close. I don't have a lot of time, but I at least want to read here um, this, this last part of uh, 1 Corinthians 2. It's pretty short. Um, but Joe, would you mind reading verse 1 through 5? And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of, and of power, 
that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. And see, Paul was bringing them back to the fact that he lived out this testimony. He lived out what he was preaching. Paul could have wowed people with his wisdom, but he didn't. He just preached the simple message of the cross, that my goal as a a pastor or a teacher of the Bible isn't necessarily to be entertaining or isn't to get people to understand. I can't do anything, really, to get people to understand. The only thing that can get people to understand is the word of God working through faith by the Holy Spirit. And again, that's what makes sometimes the Bible more offensive than other things. It's up to the teacher to make it as entertaining and captivating as possible. But yet Paul is saying it's not about that. And he was, he was in fear, not because um, Paul was afraid of people. Paul was stoned, thrown in prison, beat up. Paul wasn't afraid of anybody. Well, who he was afraid of was God, that Paul had a fear of God, that he would use his gift and his platform to glorify himself. And he didn't want to do that. And so Paul would humble himself, and he had a fear of God, that he would always point people to Jesus. And that's why he said, I claim to know nothing amongst you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul was like their spiritual father. And he's saying, if all I talked about is Jesus, why are you guys talking about philosophy and um, genealogies and, and Apollos and Paul and Cephas? Why are you guys talking about all this stuff over here when I stuck to the simple gospel? And I'm the one that actually led you guys to your initial faith. And he says he's done this so that our faith would not be in the wisdom of men, would not be in good preachers, but would be in the power of God in a personal relationship with him. And I know for me, um, you know, there's nothing more encouraging than whether it's through a sermon or discipleship when someone comes up and says, man, you know, I did the homework and I studied this and it makes sense. And all of a sudden they're learning from themselves. I get way more joy and encouragement out of that than having someone tell me I, you know, gave a good sermon. That's fine. But if it doesn't lead to people glorifying Christ and developing that personal relationship with Jesus, then it really didn't do much. And so for each one of us, that's why we're big on discipleship is it's great to get together and and meet like this, and we can give a teaching, but I don't know, and no one else does for that matter, what everyone's going to do with this after we leave this building, unless there's accountability, and unless there's discipleship, and that was Paul's heart and goal, is that people would grow in Christ, not just listen to him preach. So let's close with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 um, through 16. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of the man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the, wor- of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words, with which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, 
comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So we look at this scripture as he's closing, and I think this can be our personal application for today, is the only way we can gain spiritual wisdom is through what? What what does the scripture say? He says, um, through the Holy Spirit, that no man can know the spirit of man except that man. So no one knows exactly what's going on in my heart except me. I'm the one who can know my thoughts. In the same way, no one can know the thoughts and the attributes of God, the character of God, without God revealing those things to us through the Holy Spirit. So my question for us is if we believe we've been set apart for a purpose, we believe that we've been sanctified, we believe that the, the gospel is the power of God, that it's through humility that we're saved, it's through humility that we come to the cross, we believe that there's no way we can understand the things of God unless he shows us through his Holy Spirit, and we also believe that we are in danger by our own sin, by, our, by the culture, and by Satan's attacks in us. If we believe those things, would it make sense to be apathetic about reading our Bible or apathetic about being in prayer or apathetic about being in discipleship or being apathetic about sharing the gospel. That would make no sense if we really believe those things. And so for each one of us to really consider, one, do we believe those things? And two, if we do, I think a lot of the times the problem isn't that we don't want to do better, but we're, we're spiritually sleepy. We've grown apathetic over time. We've been turning that notch one degree at a time, and pretty soon we're boiling in the pot, not reading our Bible, not praying, not on mission for Christ, and we don't even notice it. And the other option can be is we think too highly of ourselves. We think we can go through our day. We think we can conquer the world, the devil, and um, the flesh, and every demon that cross our path without being in the word, without being connected to Christ. And I don't know why we think that, but it's easy over time to think, hey, you know, I can just, I can just do this on my own. And the way you know what you believe is not what you write down on paper. It's not what you would tell me if I asked you, but it's how you're living. How are you living your life? And are you living as if we believe what Christ has written to us through the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. So I pray that God would continue to work on our hearts as we study through the book of 1 Corinthians and how we can overcome um, these various aspects of our culture. And I just want to pray for us as a church that we would um, seriously consider what do we believe? Why do we believe it? What is our theology? What is your theology? What is your doctrine? And if you want to grow in those areas, we'd love to come alongside you and do that. So, Father God, I just thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. I thank you that you've given us a purpose that's beyond our wildest thoughts or imaginations. We have no idea what an eternal impact each one of us can and is supposed to make for you, Lord. I pray for those who are maybe convicted or discouraged today, Lord, that you would remind them that you are the author and the finisher of their faith. And all they have to do is humble themselves and cry out to you, God, and you will make the change, Lord. I pray for those who have been serving you and have been trying to finish the race that you've given them, God, that you would just put wind wind in their sails and they would be reminded that it's not up to them um, to accomplish their ministry, Lord, but you will guide them and you will open up the doors when the times are right, Father. So I just pray that we would be humbled, that we would be hungry um, for you, Lord, and that we would repent of our own um, self-reliance, God. So we just thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.